It's Wednesday, September 14th. I'm Pam Jones. Marilyn Mosby's trial has been delayed just a day before jury selection was to begin. The murder conviction of the man at the heart of the podcast serial could be vacated. An extra $2 billion. That's how much more unexpected revenue Marilyn ended the fiscal year with. Our new health reporter says Baltimore is stepping up its response to monkeypox with its vaccine availability. A community meeting of stakeholders and squeegee workers met to come up with solutions. And we'll hear from two Johns Hopkins professors who say their home was appraised hundreds of thousands below market value because they are black. It's the Daily Dose from WIPR, our latest reporting on Maryland's COVID-19 response and the local news of the day, made possible by GBMC Healthcare. The trial of Baltimore State's attorney Marilyn Mosby on federal perjury charges scheduled to start Monday has been delayed. The Baltimore Banner is reporting that U.S. District Judge Lydia Grigsby granted prosecutors' motion to delay the trial. They argued that recent disclosures by the defense meant they needed additional preparation time. Mosby is accused of lying about financial hardship during the coronavirus pandemic to withdraw money from her retirement account without penalty to purchase homes and Florida. Her attorneys argue she's not guilty because her personal travel business stalled during the pandemic. The Baltimore State's Attorney's Office moved today to vacate the conviction of Adnan Syed, who is serving a life sentence for the 1999 murder of his ex-girlfriend. In a motion filed in Baltimore City Circuit Court, prosecutors said there is new information about two other suspects in the murder case who also attended Woodlawn High School. Syed's case was the subject of Serial, a true crime podcast and HBO documentary series. Maryland finished the last fiscal year with almost $2 billion more in revenues than anticipated. State Comptroller Peter Francho announced the news during today's Board of Public Works meeting, as WIPR's Rachel Bay reports. For the second straight year, the state has a multi-billion dollar revenue surplus to start the fiscal year. The current fiscal year began July 1st with about $5.5 billion in the general fund. Of that, a little over $1.1 billion has not been allocated. But Francho says the state should save that money in the so-called rainy day fund. Future governors and legislatures should not bank on billion-dollar surpluses to be the norm in the future, as we cannot and never have defied the laws of economic gravity. He warned that tough economic times may be ahead. Officials in Francho's office say this year's surplus is the result of federal stimulus funds and higher tax payments from the wealthiest Marylanders. Rachel Bay, WYPR News. Baltimore's health department says it's entering a new phase in its response to monkeypox that could mean better access to vaccines for those at risk. WYPR's health reporter Scott Massioti reports. Baltimore is expanding the number of clinics providing monkeypox immunizations to the public as part of its continued effort to combat the disease. Centers focused on sexually transmitted infections and federally funded clinics for high-risk patients will soon offer the shot. Despite the plans for expanded access, the communities with the highest risk for monkeypox, like men who have sex with men, are worried about the scarcity of the vaccine. Baltimore Health Commissioner Letitia Jarasa says she hears those concerns. 
The health department does have a limited vaccine supply and limited capacity. Subsequently, our focus has been on equitable distribution with the vaccine supply that's available. To date, the Baltimore Health Department has received 725 doses of the vaccine from the state of Maryland. 689 of those are already allocated or used. Scott Massioni, WYPR News. Maryland is expanding its COVID-ready campaign. The goal is to encourage more people to get an added layer of protection against COVID-19 and the flu. So far, the bivalent boosters are now available at more than 850 pharmacies, clinics, and health departments. You can find out more online. Assisting Baltimore's squeegee workers was front and center last night at a community meeting at New Shiloh Baptist Church. The meeting was called after stakeholders met for eight weeks to discuss the issue. WIPR's Bethany Raja with that story. Faith Leach, Deputy Mayor of the Mayor's Office of Equity, Health and Human Services, said more than 150 people participated in the collaborative. We talk about accountability for squeegee workers, for motorists, for community members, for the government, for media. So we talked about accountability for all of us in the community around this issue. Baltimore resident Margaret Lloyd said she came because she was concerned for everyone's safety involving squeegee workers, but she also learned their side of the story. I'm going to offer more love to them when I see them and not be afraid. I'm going to be firm and stern as if they were mines. The city plans to release a new strategy to help squeegee workers in October. Bethany Raja, WYPR News. Baltimore County's Teachers Union put pressure on the school board at its meeting Tuesday night to come up with a plan to pay for promised salary increases. WIPR's John Lee reports County Executive Johnny Olszewski so far has rejected the school system's plan to pay for an average salary increase of nearly 8% for educators. Teachers Union President Cindy Sexton gave the school board a petition signed by around 3,000 of its members calling on the county and the school system to get in a room and hammer out an agreement. Sexton says the ongoing teacher shortage gives the union leverage. The leverage is we can't lose 1,000 educators again as we did last year. We, we just can't. Our school system can't sustain that. The rub is that the $50 million needed for the first year of the pay hike is not in the school system's budget. It wants to pay for it with money from its surplus fund. Oshevsky calls that fiscally unsustainable and says he wants a detailed plan going forward. The school system submitted a new plan on Friday. Oshevsky says he's reviewing it. John Lee, WIPR News. Notre Dame of Maryland University is going co-ed. The Board of Trustees voted unanimously early this week. Notre Dame has been an all-women's school for over 125 years. The decision was prompted by an evaluation of National Women's College enrollment trends, which found that less than 2% of female freshmen enroll in private women's colleges and universities every year. Men can now apply to the university for the fall 2023 semester.
Home ownership is considered a key building block of wealth, and it is illegal to discriminate against someone because of race in any phase of the mortgage process, including property appraisals. Dr. Nathan Connolly and Dr. Shani Mott both teach at Johns Hopkins University. He's an associate professor of history who studies, among other things, redlining and race. And she is an instructor for Africana Studies. In a recent conversation with Midday's Tom Hall, they discuss what they experienced as African-American homeowners as they try to refinance their home in the rather affluent community of Homeland in Northeast Baltimore, which has now become the focus of a lawsuit. Dr. Connolly describes what first attracted them to the property they purchased nearly five years ago. Well, we were looking um, around the city, having returned recently from New York. Uh, My wife and I were both working at NYU, and um, we had been in a position to finally um, buy again. We had sold our our first house over on a a side of Baltimore um, called Glen, on basically, I guess you would call the upper um, east side of the city. And um, Upper West Side, excuse me. And we had friends who we'd known for many years who had lived in Homeland. We had actually spent a fair amount of time um, at their home, uh, sleepovers for us and the kids. We had been trick-or-treating there for years. And um, there was always a a really wonderful kind of storied quality to the neighborhood. Um, It has great construction, um, you know, in the way of slate roofs and winding streets. And, you know, we're now realizing how much all those things cost (laughs) to to maintain. But, um, you know, it was certainly a neighborhood with which we had a relationship already. And so when something opened up there, and it was a house that we had passed several times on the street, just kind of driving by. And when we finally got the chance to see it up close, it was really overwhelming. Like, it was a large home. It was really solidly built. Um, and we had the chance to to really nail the price point, And so it seemed like a, a beautiful opportunity. And, Dr. Mott, um, this is an expensive home. You paid $450,000 for this house. Um, and And a lot of people, when they go looking for real estate, the schools are very important. Right. The, the proximity to schools. You have three kids. Uh, did that play into your decision it as well? It played a major um, a part in our decision because prior to us buying this house, I think when we first moved to Baltimore and our kids were daycare age and school age, I actually was working at the Bryn Mawr School, and, which is right around the corner from the house that we bought. And we knew when we had our three kids there that we could not afford three two-ish, private school right. two-ish. Yeah, like right. That was not even a possibility. And I think what's so ironic is that when we were looking for homes, a lot of the the realtors would say it really doesn't matter where you live because Baltimore is a private school city, Mm -hmm. especially if you are working at Johns Hopkins. The couple paid $450,000 for the home in 2017, and they allege that the company 2020 valuations racially discriminated against them by undervaluing the property at just $472,000, despite more than $50,000 worth of renovations that were done between 2020 and 2021. They also are suing the company Loan Depot for using the appraisal by 2020 valuations to deny a refinance. Dr. Mott recalls the day the appraiser came to their home. And when he came in, I told, or right before he came in, I told my my children, I was like, you need to, you know, go look nice, but also just disappear, like make yourself absent um, from what's the happenings in um, the house. And he walked through, and there were, I think there were one or two moments in which he, 
I don't know, called you to ask a question right. about something. Right. And there was just a, a energy in the house that was off that made me feel uncomfortable to the point where I remember tapping my husband on the arm and I said, tell him a joke or make him laugh. Right, um, to, to lighten the mood. To lighten the mood. Yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, and... Um, and he, he had come up um, from the, the basement and actually had asked a question about the tankless water heater because among the things that we had gotten done, we were, were presented with the opportunity to basically, you know, drop like $5,000 on this water heater that's supposed to give you bottomless hot water. And I was like, <laughs> oh, yeah, since we got this, you know, home equity money, let's go ahead and like make that improvement as well. And so the appraiser then remarks, he's like, oh, you have a tankless water heater. That's a really nice update. And I was like, oh, yeah, you know, kind of wink, wink, you know, this is going to be, you know, in our favor. And then there was another brief exchange about schools, I think, where you tried to... About schools. I tried to engage him and just yeah. make sure that when he was picking comparables, he understood where the the Roland Park Elementary school line was. And we, um, and we to were take, inside of it. Yeah, and yeah. We and that's a school, of course, that has a very good reputation among the best, if not the best, in the in the city for uh, you know for that age group. Right. And and uh, again, you're you're applying to refinance your loan, right? Is that do I have that correct? Correct. Yes. Correct. So so that was that was the 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 thing that um, for us felt like it was pretty run of the mill in the sense that. Obviously, sure. you know, we're getting solicitations constantly mailed to the house, phone calls, it's refi season, interest rates are great. And, you know, we did not in any, you know, um, version of this imagine pulling cash out in order to, you know, with, with the refi. It was just a matter of getting the loan payment down because when we first bought the house, we bought the home at 450 on a 4.6% interest rates and and the rates had gone down so low that we basically were were looking at somewhere between 1.9 and 2.25 so once you yeah, of, that's half right yeah. right and, and and so once you spread that out you realize well wait a minute we can actually take on a 15-year mortgage now and not have our monthly payment go up at all. So this seemed like a no-brainer to us. Shane Lanham, who is white, is the appraiser who visited the home of doctors Connolly and Mott. The couple tells Tom Hall of their reaction when they saw the final report. When I go back and I look at his report, it felt like a hit job. It's like you look at it and he basically had four comparables. And of the four, one was outside of Homeland. Um, I think two were north of Northern Parkway. uh, And then one was south of Northern Parkway on the border. But I think what's so fascinating about his comps is that he chose comparables that he he said he when he actually graded them, said that they were similar in um, in kind of construction or quality as our home. But then he proceeded to take money off um, of, of, of their value so that it met his, his valuation of, of our house. And so on the one hand, it's like, you're saying, you're saying you chose, I mean, of the, I can't, I can't remember the exact number that he had to choose from, but he basically restricted his comps to 16% of what was available. And then within that 16%, chose the homes that, were, you know, that he claimed were comparable, but then, you know, deducted money right. in saying that they were not comparable. Yeah, and again, anybody who knows the city knows that that area around Northern Parkway and Charles Street, where Homeland uh, is, you know, yeah. generally situated, um, these are very beautiful homes. It's right. a very affluent neighborhood. Right. And, uh, you know, to, to compare those homes with homes in other neighborhoods really does seem 
uh, unjustifiable. I mean, what what was the justification that uh, you were given when because you contested the uh, yeah. uh, the outcome of this appraisal? Obviously, <laughs> yeah. Um, what did what did they say? What how did they justify? It? Well, well, I mean, maybe we'll circle back to the to the circumstances around the appraisal because we were hit with an absolute thunderclap relative to Shawnee's health while all this was going on. And so I, I don't want to go too far down the road without acknowledging how difficult it was for us to try to pull together even the rebuttal while, you know, Shawnee was basically like bedridden for, for a lot of this. Um, but, you know, the argument was basically that there was a racial border. You know, and he didn't you know, use he the language use race at all, right? right? But, it, but it was the way you could see that he drew an arbitrary line through our neighborhood and basically said this house is not even fit to be compared to the houses in the remainder of Homeland south of the line that I've drawn effectively. And he also made a distinction between where our, our house was and what he called the heart of Homeland. Right. As though we were not part of the heart. Earlier this year, the couple looked to another lender to do an appraisal on their property, but this time they did something differently. They removed their children's artwork and artifacts and any other signs that a black family lived there. They also had a white colleague answer the door when the second appraiser arrived. What number did that appraiser place on the home? $750,000. You can hear more of this story by going to Midday at WYPR. Org. The Daily Dose is brought to you by WYPR, made possible by GBMC Healthcare. Many thanks to my news team colleagues, Rachel Bay, Shekinah Collier, Bethany Raja, John Lee, Joel McCord, and Kristen Mossbrugger. Our general manager is LaFontaine Oliver. The executive editor of The Daily Dose is Danielle Irby. If you have a scoop or suggestion for this podcast, my social media hangout is Twitter at That's Pam Jones. So remember to be courageous and stay curious. I'm Pam Jones. Thanks for listening.